Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. For more information on the podcast, please go to christianchiller.com slash podcasts. I'm speaking to you from another random hotel room. Conference season is still in full swing. I am in Minsk on the side of an extremely noisy road. I can hear it even if you can't. A slightly different episode this week. I'm not going to present my favourite links because I have a large backlog of interviews from the recent KubeCon conference I was at and I would rather get those out to you. So I actually have three interviews for you this week, all loosely around the topic of Kubernetes, DevOps, cloud computing, etc., etc. So if you're not into those topics, this may not be the episode for you, but still you might be interested in hearing what people have to say. So the three interviews are... In this order, Jason McGee from IBM, and then following from that, I have Carmine Rimi from Canonical, and then finally, I have an interview with Sheng Liang from Rancher Labs, and we discuss Kubernetes, current state of cloud computing, new tools, new releases, all from a quite exciting conference that, unfortunately, I did not get to spend as much time at as I would have liked. And probably next week, I will have some more interviews from KubeCon. But in the meantime, enjoy. So I'm Jason McGee. I work for IBM. I run um, Cloud Platform for the public cloud side of IBM's cloud business. So kind of everything, platform as a service, Kubernetes, serverless, Istio, that whole space. Okay. And uh, I guess what's your interest in being here? Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah, somewhat fairly obvious. I mean, uh, as a as a major cloud vendor, you know, we believe in cloud native. We've been doing Kubernetes and containers for five years, and and uh, so we're here to talk about what we're doing, to meet with clients, and to uh, uh, contribute to the community. We're big contributors in many of the projects that are part of CNCF. I mean, um, I guess IBM has a, a, fight, a fairly well known um, audience in particular sectors, mm-hmm. and then maybe isn't known so well in for other users of cloud vendors so how do you compete with some of the the bigger names and yeah do differently i guess to do that yeah so so there's probably kind of two dimensions that i mean the cloud the cloud market i think is an interesting space there's a handful of kind of big global players we're in that group um you know we have a global public cloud i think um we are more slanted towards enterprise. So if you kind of look at the kind of spectrum of users, we certainly lean more towards what are the needs of a, an enterprise market um, developer. Um, as part of that, we've had, a, I think, historically a stronger kind of hybrid um, slant to our cloud strategy, you know, a, a combination of public and private cloud uh, dimension to our strategy than some of the others have, although you, you start to see them come around uh, to that. Um, you know, so we're after, you know, how can we help enterprises make this journey to cloud move not only the new things they're building, but also how do they take the you know, 80% of existing apps they have and find a way to bring them into cloud as well. So is it, is it less uh, off the shelf and more kind of consulting or somewhere between the two? Uh, it's both. I mean, IBM's uh, is probably the only end-to-end tech company anymore where we have both product and consulting services. So on the product side, you know, we have a global public cloud that we run in uh, in, you know, 30 plus countries around the world um, that people can use as a platform for hosting their applications. We have clients like American Airlines and Harley Davidson and Maersk and others who use that as their public cloud. Uh, We also have a private cloud stack that we offer that's um, aligned with our public cloud that people run in their data center or run themselves on other clouds like Amazon and and Azure. 
Um, and then, of course, we have a pretty rich collection of consulting services that can go with that to advise people on how to move to cloud, to do the work for them, to run systems for them, whatever they okay. need. Some people might know already, but what are some of the services you currently offer? And then mm -hmm. we'll talk about what you're going to be offering. But what do you currently offer? From a cloud service, like yeah. the, the more the product side. Um, so uh, our public cloud is kind of a full spectrum. So of course, uh, on the public side, we have infrastructure services, you know, compute network storage. I think one of the differentiators we've had there has been a strong uh, bare metal mm -hmm. uh, capability in our cloud um, that, you know, uh, has served us well with clients and we use for our VMware offerings and other things. In the platform space, we have a managed Kubernetes mm -hmm. service called IKS, yeah. IBM Cloud Kubernetes. That's really the foundation for most of the rest of our cloud. So, um, you know, we have a Cloud Foundry service. We have a serverless platform called Cloud Functions. We have higher level capabilities like database as a service, AI and, and ML with Watson, all of that. Um, so kind of that whole um, stack is available uh, in our cloud. Most of that itself runs on Kubernetes, mm -hmm. right? So we have quite a lot of operational experience on kind of using container platforms as part of a production system. Uh, and then, you know, a subset of that stack is also available in private cloud, okay. right, as a Kubernetes-based stack. And I'm guessing, um, because your peak client base is enterprise, then there's a lot of um, hybrid cloud offerings too. Right. I mean, easy to do. Yeah, relatively. Yeah. So I think we have a pretty comprehensive stack where you can run both public and private and mix the two yep. together. Recently, we've announced capabilities like multi-cloud management. So okay. tools to help you kind of manage across environments. I mean, think about things like take somebody who's decided on Kubernetes and they're running as inevitably happens with Kubernetes. You run tens or yep. you know dozens of clusters of Kubernetes in different places. How do you see what's running in all of those? How do you set constant security policy? policy or application policies. So we have tools mm -hmm. that allow you to do that very easily and kind of set up, especially in an enterprise context, think about like um, a security officer who says like, I want the network policy for Kubernetes to be the same in all my clusters. Yeah. You know, how do you do that easily? Yeah. Um, so we've built tools like that uh, with multi-cloud management. Um, and so, yeah, it's easy for people to kind of set up both dimensions. I think the other part of kind of enterprise is things like security and compliance and isolation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, our Kubernetes offering on the public cloud, um, you can order, if you want, fully isolated clusters, meaning they run on dedicated hardware mm -hmm. if you want. That's not shared by anybody on, of course, isolated networks. They can be fully managed but totally disconnected from the Internet, so they're only accessible from the corporate network through okay. a direct link or something. Mm -hmm. And so if you even just think about kind of how we surface them, we've tried to think through, you know, what does an enterprise need? What are some of the unique requirements that okay. they have? Um, and I guess, so what are you, what are you at KubeCon to, to talk about or to promote maybe new features or? Yeah announcements or you know what are you here to promote sure just general <laughs> yeah so so apart from just uh, awareness of of our capabilities and telling you know uh, about our contributions in the space i think the new thing this week is we're gonna announce a new open source project that we're creating called razi mm -hmm. um razi is really a continuous delivery framework for okay. um cloud native microservices so one of the challenges we found when we were running kubernetes is we run you know in our managed kubernetes service um well over ten thousand clusters mm -hmm. around the world inside of all those clusters we manage software on behalf of the user and so how do you manage that you know how do you do microservice rollout to 10 or 20,000 locations how do you have flexibility around you know what gets updated when and how that update process works um, 
And we started with a very traditional kind of Jenkins, you know, triggered CD process and quickly found that at that kind of scale and in, in the microservice world, that didn't work very well. It was incredibly complex. So we built a system that, uh, which we call Razzy, which is kind of a rules-based um, pull-oriented uh, CD framework okay. that we think is really good for kind of managing complex microservice environments. We're open sourcing that yeah. um, stuff and we're starting to build it into, um, you know, our multi-cloud management tools and, and uh, integrating with the community. Uh, and... I mean, apart from it being another open source offering, I'm guessing it also integrates fairly well into the existing tool chains you have. Absolutely. I mean, so we use it ourselves. We're starting, you know, one of the things it does really well um, is it also gives you a view of inventory, like what's running everywhere in your fleet, right? And that's a problem that lots of enterprises actually need solved. Like if you think about how do you run compliant workloads, for example, on a Kubernetes platform, you need to know exactly what version of every container was running when, when did it get updated, so you can prove compliance and all that kind of boring stuff. Um, and Razzy gives you all that kind of information. So we're surfacing it in our products to our users. Okay. Um, but, you know, we think it's an interesting approach to uh, continuous delivery. It's something I think the community hasn't quite nailed yet is if we really all believe in microservices and we're going to have this multi-cloud environment within, with clusters all over the place, like how do you actually manage that yeah. uh, from a CD perspective? And so we what, think there's Why do you value. think the community hasn't nailed it? I mean, there's lots of options available. What are they not doing quite right? I mean, apart from everything being slightly separate, of course, yeah, what so are they not doing? What I think they're not doing um, so far is, is there's kind of two, I think, fundamental ideas in Razzy that we found really flipped it for us. Mm -hmm. One was going from push to pull oriented. So if you think about like how your phone updates, it's a pull oriented model, right? Like all yeah. the phones in the world go check in with some server somewhere to see if there's updates available and they pull them down and update themselves. That's the way Razzy works too. It's not the way people traditionally do CD. CD is usually like you have a pipeline in something like Jenkins and after you get through some gates, then you go push the changes into yeah. all your environments, which works when you have like dev test prod, but doesn't work when you have, you know, a hundred environments or a thousand environments that you have to go after. And it doesn't work because of the second dimension, which is like the rules about when you want to update what. So like, for example, one of our problems was, let's say we're running in six major regions in the world. We want to roll out a change. Mm -hmm. We want to start it in Australia where we have a smaller customer base and eventually roll it to the U.S. where we have a big customer mm -hmm. base. Um, or like kind of coding all those kinds of rules into okay. a, a traditional CD system yeah. is hard. Usually like feature right? flags. Yeah. And, things like that. And, yeah. and in fact, what we did in Razzy exactly was yeah. we modeled everything as feature flags. Okay. We use LaunchDarkly as our kind of feature flag system yeah. to essentially represent every cluster in the world as a target that we can write rules yeah. against. Right. And it might be like a more consistent rollout. Like we update 3 a.m. Eastern time every day. Even if there's nothing there, but right, uh, yeah. right. I mean, so the so the clusters kind of self check in every minute to see if there's something available. If if I was going to do a global rollout, but you didn't want yours updated right now, it'd be easy for me to kind of opt you out. And so it just gave us a ton more flexibility on uh, disconnecting kind of the CI pipeline from the CD pipeline, and then having the CD side be really flexible about who gets updated and how it happens. And it scaled better, to be honest. Too. And is that directly? Uh, uh, I'm say it's a Kubernetes 
plug in or it could run separately yeah. Kubernetes or yeah I mean it it, um, uh, it certainly is kind of optimized around running Kubernetes oriented things um, it itself just runs as a container like the update part of it runs as a container inside the cluster and then there's some infrastructure on the server side for storing configuration storing rules applying these yeah. rules and how do people define that is it YAML as well yes YAML is always <laughs> yes. No, no need to uh, reinvent that stuff <laughs> from, from your offering over there is there like a, a sort of visual builder as well or is it all just configuration um, the UI part of it is more um, the UI for inventory of what's running where and rules definition right like I want to change this rule and therefore apply those changes there's not a lot in the definition of the of the package itself, although most of the packages themselves that you're employing are just YAML. They're mm -hmm. just, you know, you can use Helm, of course, but they're just mostly Kubernetes YAML, you know, collections of YAML that represent a service, a container, okay. you know, a deployment spec, something like that. And are there any major users that you can or can't talk about yet apart from yourself? Uh, there's not some that we can talk about publicly yet, um, and part of this is just about getting the ideas out there. I mean, there's actually been a ton of activity in this in the kind of uh, CI/CD space recently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're also heavily involved in in projects like Knative and Tecton Pipelines, mm -hmm. and so I think this is all in that space. And so, really, our intention is to get the ideas out there, figure out how it might fit in with some of these other things. So, I don't know. In the long term, it's like we want Razzy to be its like. A project by itself. It's similar, actually, to um, Istio. You know, IBM. Yeah. My team at IBM was was kind of the half of the founding team of Istio. We had a prior open source project that we had created called Amalgamate that was kind of our lead into what became Istio. And you know, we got together with the Google guys actually at KubeCon a few years ago, and kind of joined forces and and wound up creating what is now Istio. And I think things like this uh, yeah. will probably follow a yeah. similar trajectory. And there's, there's been a waning of some older CIs recently for various reasons as well so maybe there's a gap for some new players yeah, as well yeah <laughs> and, and yeah I think there is and uh, and like I said I think a lot of the CICD stuff hasn't really changed to kind of represent what's going on now with microservice based development mm -hmm. with container based development like they've been adapted yeah. and that works fine at a certain level but you know, like if I looked at my own team and as we were building our managed group service, we had like 45 microservices that made up that internal implementation. Yeah. It was like, how did I even allow my own team independently to be able to deploy and update that across this huge fleet? Yeah. So you needed a different approach, right? For people who haven't used uh, IBM Cloud before, mm -hmm. um, where, where do you feel it sits on the, in terms of, um, I guess uh, the casual developer to begin with being able to, to dabble like some clouds can be fairly complicated to get started <laughs> with, and others can be simpler but you hit a, a wall quickly like yeah, how, how easy is it, especially to kind of mesh some of those services you offer? And I'm obviously not an unbiased speaker, um, <laughs> but uh, I actually think we've spent a lot of time over the last few years uh, really thinking about how to make it easy for people to consume. And I think we have in the kind of PaaS space, especially, we have a pretty strong set of capabilities. Um, IBM over the last uh, five plus years has spent a lot of time on design mm -hmm. um, and have a, a like one of the best kind of corporate design practices in the world, and we've applied a lot of that skill to our cloud and what that cloud experience is. So I think getting going is actually very simple. You know, it's really easy to get kube clusters going. It's really easy to build apps. Um, you know, the wall part, I don't know that there's an explicit wall, but obviously with all technologies, there comes yeah, a point yeah. where oh, you have to go a little deeper. You, know, you right? have some interesting offerings on IBM Cloud, like Hyperledger and mm -hmm. Watson, which are somewhat unique. Right. And I don't exactly know if you want to connect them, but whatever. Yeah, no. 
but still it could be possible and the, you kind of have the ability to, to create some quite nuanced projects with right. not just uh, infrastructure but some other aspects. I, I agree. And, and if you look at IBM's history, like, you know, my personal history, I'm an old app server guy. Like, mm-hmm. I was one of the, the leads for WebSphere. And so, like, the whole application space and application middleware is kind of how we think. And today, that's really PaaS in the cloud world. Mm-hmm. And and so we've spent a lot of time there. And, and composability, like this idea of having this catalog of APIs that you can easily wire together is something that um, has always been at the foundation of how we thought about how IBM Cloud would work. And so you can take things like, I want to build a containerized app on Kube or a Cloud Foundry app and leverage blockchain and call Watson APIs and like glue all that together. Mm-hmm. And there's some pretty compelling examples where you can build some stuff pretty fast that way. Right? Speaking of doing things together, I don't know... Uh, guessing this is a subject you're okay to talk about I'm not mm-hmm. sure but how has um, bringing in a lot of Red Hat's mm-hmm. um, cloud technologies been going I think I actually spoke to some people from Red Hat when it first happened and it was still in that phase <laughs> yeah. Ago, so. yeah I mean we're still a little bit in that phase so, you know that the, you know we've stated our intention to acquire them it's not closed oh okay, okay. it'll close in the second half of the year but I think generally um, you know, we've been working with Red Hat for a long time in open source, over 20 years, actually. I mean, IBM uh, put a billion dollars into Linux over 20 years yeah. ago and helped really create the ecosystem that allowed Linux to flourish. Um, so I think overall, we're pretty aligned on the tech stack that, you know, underpins what people are doing. Um, and I think bringing Red Hat into the picture is mostly a, a recognition of the role of hybrid mm. in the phase of cloud that we're going into. Like, you know, it's overgeneralization, but you could argue that the first, this kind of first round of cloud was mostly kind of new app development, um, extensions of existing apps being built in the cloud. Yeah, yeah. We're now trying to figure out how to take all yeah. that other hard stuff and bring it in. Yeah. And that's going to require hybrid. And you see all of my competitors off coming up with their own flavors of hybrid offerings and stuff okay. to try yeah. to deal with that. Right. Yeah. And I think Red Hat is part of strengthening that. It's deal. actually a, a nice, uh, so, I mean, there's, there's some controversy in the cloud vendors, although mm-hmm. really only with one, <laughs> mm-hmm. of not being particularly good open source citizens, mm-hmm. whereas um, a lot of the, the smaller, in quote marks, players mm-hmm. have been way better as a point mm-hmm. of differentiation. Yeah. And you've already mentioned a few open source uh, contributions, but I guess, like, for, for, for you, or not for you as a company, where... Where, where does uh, looking after the, the business and making sure that the open source underpinnings are a healthy kind of stop and start? Yeah. So, look, open source and kind of open technology has been one of the core principles of our cloud approach from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think IBM over the last 20 years has been actually very consistent yeah, about yeah. open source and, and contributions. And for that to work, you need healthy projects, mm-hmm. right? So we actually invest a lot of time and and, uh, and labor in those projects. Um, we spend a lot of time on governance mm-hmm. and making sure that those projects are not only strong technically, but have a governance structure around them that allows them to flourish. And, you know, CNCF as a foundation, IBM helped with, and OCI and lots of other things. Um, and so, you know, that's like we have to keep the base healthy, and then we take that and we make it available in our products. And sometimes that's... Um, you know, most of the time it's it's kind of a packaging and integration. Like in the public cloud, it's actually easier in my mind because 
the value prop is we run this as a service for you. Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of value in, you know, setting up and keeping it secure and updated and available and all of that kind of operations around uh, a stack like Kubernetes. And we can do that for you. In the private cloud, I think it's more about integrating all the pieces together. I mean, even just like at CNCF, like how many projects are there in CNCF? And for the average customer to say, like, I'm going to self-assemble all these pieces and then keep them all up to date and secure, like, that's actually a lot of work. And so there's a value prop in bringing that together as a platform. And I guess um, what sort of percentage of your offerings, you know, ignoring adding the infrastructure and the consultancy, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. a thing that only a particular company can offer because that's you. Right. What, how much of the various technologies you have do you keep kind of closed source to yourselves versus versus being open? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the percentages are um, to to put a real number on that. You know, all of the new things that we've been doing are certainly all based on open technologies, whether that's blockchain with Hyperledger, obviously in the cloud native space with Kube and Cloud Foundry and serverless and all kinds of things that we've done in that space. You know, in some of our legacy businesses, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there's obviously more proprietary code there. Uh, you know, in in MQ messaging and and um, business process management and things like that. But even in those cases, what we're starting to do is. Uh, package and optimize those things to run on this new platform, Mm -hmm. right? So people can uh, leverage the kind of operational efficiencies of Kubernetes to run their existing, you know, MQ applications or web server app server applications and things like that. So there's a mix, but most of the new things, if you look at Watson, there's lots of open source that underpins Watson. Um, You know, we've been pretty consistent, I think, in in this idea, especially, you know, the, the place to look most of the time is like, where does it touch the code or application that the that the user is going to create? Like, if there's a touch point that, you know, of some artifact they're going to build, we want that artifact to be an open source, open standard, right? So that they have freedom of action with that artifact, because that's where their time investment is, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's where we tend to look the most, whereas, you know, sometimes with management tools or management experience or things around it, maybe that will likely be product stuff and less open source stuff, right? With a lot of like a lot of traditional enterprise vendors, well, maybe thinking of a handful mm-hmm. switching to very similar business models of starting to move most of their services to cloud offerings, a kind mm-hmm. of something as mm-hmm. uh, SaaS, whatever, right? Yeah. Something <laughs> um, as a service, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so they're all starting to do some a lot of similar things to each other. I guess how how do you think um, you will all and, and IBM especially differentiate from mm-hmm. Microsoft and um, Google to a certain extent and all the other companies starting to do similar things yeah. with their traditional business? Yeah. So I think it's going to be a few things. I mean, one is um, our knowledge of enterprise really does influence the the subtleties of how we build those things. Mm-hmm. So like how you do security and isolation, how you do contracting for cloud, um, how you um, enable them to do encryption and key mm-hmm. management. Like there's a lot of subtle detail that can become the, in, the inhibitor for taking something as a service and actually being able to use it in an enterprise context. And I think, um, you know, we understand that stuff better than anyone else. And we're building that into um, kind of how our cloud works. Um, I think the hybrid thing shouldn't be underplayed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, most of our competitors do not really have a comprehensive hybrid strategy where the same stack is available in a consistent way between on-prem and off. Mm-hmm. Some of them are trying to get there. Some of them have been trying, but but 
to be successful, that's going to have to be uh, real, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we have lots of clients who are doing that, where they're using public cloud for some things, they're using private cloud for others. They need those to be consistent. Those decisions change over time. Um, so I think that hybrid notion is really key. You know, it's funny. Four years ago, IBM got a lot of flack, I think, for talking a lot about hybrid, and there was maybe a mindset in the industry that hybrid wasn't real cloud. Right. And now everyone's doing something in hybrid because yeah. right? it's just the reality. It's just pragmatic reality of IT. Like, you know, 20, 30, 50 years of IT investment doesn't just all change overnight. No, no, no. Even, even if we all believe cloud is the ultimate model, it's, you know, there's a long period where we're going to need both. And just for redundancy more than anything else. Right. Putting all your eggs in one basket is never a good Oh, sure. Thing. And that's, that's where I think like the multi-cloud dimension yeah. comes in as well. It's like, okay, you even if you believe in cloud or you've moved all to public cloud, do you want all one vendor? Do yeah, you want yeah, multiple yeah. vendors? Like, so that's the reality yeah. that I think and we all have to deal with. We'll have on-premise stuff probably running in IE6 or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing goes away. <laughs> um, so I guess what's on the roadmap for the next six months? Um, uh, there's always interesting stuff happening in the roadmap. Um, you can talk about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, we're still kind of playing out this uh, platform. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we're in this interesting transition period that I alluded to of customers trying to figure out how to move you know, the more mission critical uh, systems into the cloud. Um, and so taking Kubernetes and all the things that go around it and helping them be successful at that is really the focus. Mm -hmm. How that plays out, I mean, I think there's things like Istio, mm -hmm. which are from a technology standpoint are mature, but are still early in their adoption phase, which I think will have a huge impact on how people um, leverage these systems and how they solve for security in other dimensions. I think Knative as a tech stack is the next kind of 2019 or early 2020 mm -hmm. thing that's like, all right, how do you bring functions and apps into the picture and have that part of the stack be consistent? Um, so I think those are areas where we're doing a lot of work on, on not only helping the projects, but building it into our platforms and building the tools around it to help people be successful leveraging those things. My uh, name is Carmine Remy. I work for Canonical as a product manager for Kubernetes and artificial intelligence. That's an interesting mix of, uh, of portfolios. Um, how do they cross over? Great question. Uh, so in the AI space, we offer and package Kubeflow. Kubeflow is open sourced by uh, Google, and it is uh, a Kubernetes native application. So what it does, it, um, it actually bundles a lot of the popular frameworks like TensorFlow, PyTorch, MXNet, uh, as well as uh, they've come to market with their own components, something called Kati, which is hyperparameter tuning, plus pipelines, which is workflow and make that all available to uh, the community as easy to consume, easy to deploy, composable, portable, scalable, artificial intelligence, leveraging Kubernetes underneath and the mechanisms it provides, including things like GPU awareness and stuff like that. And it's, it's a very good an interesting combination. I had heard of Kubeflow and had kind of forgotten about it, actually. Uh, and I've been playing with TensorFlow recently, so maybe I should have remembered. Um, are you the only vendor to offer it together? or 
<laughs> others do. Uh, I think at the moment we may be, but there's certainly plenty of uh, other vendors participating in the community. Uh, Microsoft, Amazon, of course, Google, uh, IBM Cloud. Uh, those are all popular names, including even Red Hat. You know, everybody is participating in that community. I think they see the value of what they're trying to do. They've kept it pretty um, open and pretty uh, easy to extend and operate. Uh, but it also is a part of that community, making it easy for other people to participate and, and probably leveraging the similar kind of dynamics you see in Kubernetes to make things like pluggability and extensibility, like CSI, CNI, uh, those kinds of things uh, are part of, I think, the, the ecosystem and the ethos that goes into Kubeflow as well. And uh, it's, it was, it's only been around for less than a year, I think. Yeah, well, just over a year, year and a half. Um, we just uh, published the 0 0.5 release. So each quarter, there's a release for Kubeflow. Um, they're aggressively marching towards a 1.0. Um, I think the 1.0 will be very similar to what you see in Kubernetes, where you know some things will be, some components will be GA, some will be beta, some will be alpha, and then things will just uh, progress over time. So rather than the entire platform, being uh, 1.0, it's more likely that the underlying harness, the microkernel, if you will, plus uh, some key components, all will be 1.0, GA, and then everything else, beta and alpha. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as public as you can be, what have people been building with Kubeflow over the past 18 months with Canonical? <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, we find it, um, so it's still in the um, early stages. So people, a lot of people are doing development and training of their models using Kubeflow. We find uh, slightly different to Kubernetes with Kubeflow on top of Microcates. So Microcates is our single node, uh, easy to install. Uh, it's a snap, you know, snap, install, Microcates, and you have a fully formed compliant Kubernetes cluster. So the idea of ephemeral stacks comes up. So because it's so quick and so fast, whether it's in your own private cloud or it's in a public cloud, so imagine uh, Google, GCP, or AWS, you know, you have some scripts that will quickly and easily spin up uh, a single node of whatever size, uh, which can be quite massive, right? So imagine a massive uh, workstation. Plus, you know, with uh, Google, you can associate a number of GPUs install microcates, install Qflow on top of that, do your training, and at the end of that, you've got a model that you can just then output, tear the whole thing down, and you're done. So apart from Qflow, I just got uh, interested and we, we kept it started going. Um, what else is uh, Canonical here to, well, at KubeCon, I guess you're the, the right person to be here, but what else are you here to, to specifically promote or talk about? It's uh, primarily those two, uh, those two projects, Kubernetes and Kubeflow. But in addition to that, of course, you know it's our operating system. Ubuntu is used everywhere uh, in all the public clouds. So if you look at, um, and, then, and actually I should um, take a couple steps back, it's not just our offering of Kubernetes, both the uh, what we call the charm distribution of Kubernetes and microcates. We also support the uh, public cloud offerings for Kubernetes. So whether it's EKS, GKE, AKS, um, they all underneath the covers operate on top of Ubuntu. The worker nodes are on top of Ubuntu. And so even just at that level of the operating system being um, prevalent in all these different public clouds means that we can support our customers and other customers in that space. Um, of course, with our own uh, distribution, we do have a multi-cloud story. So our distribution of Kubernetes with the automation technology we have around it can easily deploy and set up 
clusters of 1,000, 5,000 nodes in any of those public clouds, plus on-prem with the VMware, uh, directly on bare metal, on OpenStack. And so we have, I think, probably the widest spectrum of uh, deployment targets that we support, uh, and we support at a very low cost. Uh, compared to our competitors, um, we actually have uh, a product called uh, Ubuntu Advantage for Infrastructure, and you get all of this, the, the, the operating system support, plus OpenStack if you need it, plus Kubernetes, and an extremely low price. I'd be interested to know, I mean, Canonical with Ubuntu has tried a lot of experiments in the past, some of which have been more successful than others. And I think the, the container um, trend has been pretty good for, for Ubuntu. So how much has that changed, I guess, the path of development versus its other use cases that people might know? And... Um, yeah, how how big of an of a of a part of of I guess roadmap is it now? Sure. No, I think a, a very big part. You know, we certainly have our Kubernetes team, but we also do invest in, in, in the entire landscape. The operating system itself, uh, as you're pointing out, uh, you do have containers now. You had virtual machines as well, and all of those are sort of slightly different form factors, if you will, for the actual operating system. And whether or not you want a fully fledged operating system or you want a, a minimal version of that operating system, and we cover that whole spectrum, so that we can cover you for a container, we can cover you for a virtual machine. Machine. And before containers, you can imagine the, the space was slightly different in terms of creating virtual machines. How do you sort of stand up virtual machines uh, in terms of the underlying infrastructure and hypervisor? Um, that still is a big part for a lot of companies. As you know, I think we're still in the early part of the adoption curve for Kubernetes. There's a lot of exciting projects, a lot of things going on. It feels so big and mature already. <laughs> well, it is big and mature, but then when you get into what surprises me, I think you've written about DevOps in the past. Uh, what surprises me is how many organizations don't do DevOps or still haven't done DevOps. And if you're not doing DevOps, sure, you can do containers and somebody's manually, you know, once a week, once a month, pushing the button, they build and all of a sudden they got a container. Uh, but I think Kubernetes and containers really shine when you start thinking about CI, CD pipelines. I've got a friend uh, who's working uh, for a company here in Europe and uh, this company is a conglomerate. They've acquired a lot of other sort of separate companies, have hundreds of products actually in technology. And within that company, these practices that we're talking about, CI, CD, Kubernetes, containers, uh, microservice architecture, isn't native. It's actually quite, uh, yeah. There is still this difference between just building on the cloud and cloud native, and I think that's the phase we're in. Actually, the last time I was at this venue for Mobile Congress, where it's a much bigger mix of companies, I spoke with uh, an Italian telco where they just switched to kind of cloud native, and the things they were able to now do, they were sort of quite exuberant about. <laughs> it was quite interesting to hear this very traditional company like, oh, now we're doing this and we're doing that and we're moving so much quicker and trying all these crazy ideas. And to me, it just felt like, well, duh. But, you know, to them, it was still quite new. And that's actually what they were talking about was trying to convince other enterprise companies to make, to make this switch like they had and how much benefit it had brought to them. That's, you bring up a good point. Uh, you find that a lot. If you are uh, an early adopter, then you might have adopted something two, three years ago, and you kind of forget, similar to having kids and it becomes Christmas or something like that, right? You sort of forget the joy that other people experience when they first come around this and, and all of the, the headaches that it solves. Uh, I was at, uh, I uh, started the cloud team at uh, Workday. 
And one of the things that we tried to do there, one of my missions was to have a software-defined data center. Up until that time, the data center itself and how servers get created, racks, virtual machines, um, was a very manual process. Filing tickets, taking two weeks, you know, all of those classic things. That's still true in a lot of different places. With Kubernetes, you know, obviously a lot of that stuff goes away. With Microcase, being able to actually take advantage of this latest stuff directly on your own laptop, I think helps some of these organizations that haven't adopted it start to get a sense for, an idea for what this thing can do. And in terms of those early adopters or innovators, which I think is one of the things that we target as a company is, you know, who are those innovators that are trying to create things? What are some, what's some of the friction that they experience in their consumption of open source? And then how can we eliminate that? So that's why you see things like our microcates or CDK, our snap technology as well. All of the things go a long way towards making it easy for innovators to consume open source. And then also we'll help solve some of the boring complex things that have nothing to do with your business, right? I'd be interested, I mean, we've already mentioned that uh, Ubuntu is used by a lot of other Kubernetes vendors. How much of your time and your team's time is spent kind of making your offering as good as it can be versus helping those vendors make their offerings as good as they can be as well? Yeah, well, to be honest, actually, those are separate teams. So we have a whole operating system team, several um, teams that just focus on the operating system itself. It's different form factors. We have really good relationships with all of the different public clouds. And I think hand on heart, we can e uh, easily say we really don't care whether or not you are using our distribution of Kubernetes or somebody else's distribution of Kubernetes. We will support you as a customer in either setting, as well as support you in terms of some of the open source technology you want to deploy on top of that, whether it's things like Kafka or Postgres or MySQL, um, you know, in our archives and Debian packages and stuff like that, we already actually support a large number of open source projects, and that's just going to continue as those things get sort of containerized and Kubernetes becomes the natural way to deploy and operate those. Bearing all that in mind, how, well, what, I suppose, your own Kubernetes offering, what do you, what and how do you ensure that it, it is offers something over people just using Ubuntu on another vendor. Right, right, right. <laughs> so there, I think what we focus on is the um, operational primitives. So the fact that we have the same exact primitive, so the same exact API, if you will, that allows you to then deploy a Kubernetes cluster of any size on any of these different substrates and that we handle the whole day two operation of it, so the whole lifecycle management, so that you can upgrade when you want to, when you need to. Uh, and if you've used some of the public clouds, you know that um, they have their own cadence for when they upgrade. Um, I don't think any of the public clouds are on 114. We were on 114 within two weeks. And so if that's important to you, if some of those innovations are important to you, then that's one of the ways that we sort of help ensure that uh, our offering is compelling in, in the users uh, out there for, for, for users to leverage, um, as well as the, the different form factors of microcates. So microcates being a single node cluster, on the roadmap we'll sort of have uh, the ability to do a clustered microcates. So when you think of IoT devices, edge clouds, um, those are also areas where Ubuntu is very popular, very dominant. Having microcates and supporting our customers to deploy microcates there is sort of natural for us. And then between that and bridging the gap between microcates and CDK, that's why I think a lot of our customers find attractive. 
Do you host your uh, offering on your own infrastructure, or are you hosting it on other clouds? You know. I see what you're saying. So um, we do have a managed Kubernetes offering. Um, and as part of that managed uh, Kubernetes offering, there is flexibility in terms of where we manage it there. So it's not exactly a hosted, you know, uh, Kubernetes as a service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and apart from Kubeflow and the, what are you saying, Microcade? Microcade. Microcade. Micro K8S. Ah, Kate. Kate. okay. Um, do you have any new features or announcements at the, the show this year? No, just in terms of uh, nothing, um, nothing that we haven't already announced as part of our 1904 uh, operating system uh, release, as well as our most recent version of, uh, of our release of both MicroKates and CDK, our charm distribution of Kubernetes, uh, as being sort of the latest and greatest things uh, there. There's some things that we've added in terms of new network plugins. Um, the fact that we're actually on ContainerD, so one of the very first distributions to be on ContainerD. Um, and there's a few other sort of minor th things and enhancements there. But yeah, nothing more dramatic than that. And uh, what's on the roadmap for the next six months? Uh -huh. Or year, or whatever? <laughs> That uh, we, we can't talk about too much other than, you know, what we can say is that we're seeing a, a, a massive adoption and to some degree a surprising level of adoption for microcates. Uh, it seems to be infiltrating a lot of different areas. And so on the back of that, we are looking at additional innovations we can do and use cases around microcates. Let's dig into that a little bit more, actually, because I'd not heard of it before, but it sounds quite interesting. So this is a developer tool, I guess, that you install locally? or yeah, so think of it as a developer tool and think of it as IoT and Edge. And so what it is, um, and actually I didn't even go into our you know, Ubuntu core operating system that is all snapped, but it's a snap. The snaps themselves have interesting properties around channels. So you've got, you know, uh, essentially... Um, uh, edge, you know, beta, release candidate, uh, stable release. So you have these different channels. And then uh, with snaps, it's kind of, they're kind of like the applications on your phone. They will automatically upgrade and update if they're within the same major dot minor. So if it's a patch release, so when there's a security exploit, these snaps get automatically updated. Microcates is a snap. And all you have to do is sort of say, you know, snap install microcates. And you have a fully functioning uh, microcates cloud that also has some functionality around GPU. Use. It also makes it really easy to create your own um, registry if you want to contain a registry, uh, if you want to run Istio, if you want to run the dashboard. It has all these kinds of features. And so once you make it easy for people to install, in, in, in quite literally with good network connection, you'll have it up and running in 10 seconds. How, you know, it's hard to get easier than that. Now, if you're not on Ubuntu, uh, we do also have, and in, in, in beta on all the different operating systems, a technology called Multipass. So if you go to multipass.run, you'll see that you can download an application for Windows, for the Mac, for Linux. Um, and with that, you can do something like multipass launch Bionic, and you'll get a virtual machine that is Ubuntu. Okay, it is that uh, like using Vagrant or Docker or? Vagrant. Similar Vagrant, but uh, and it, 
it's not using Docker, it's not using Vagrant. It can use VirtualBox, but it uses the actual native hypervisor. So the Mac oh, yeah, yeah. has a hypervisor framework. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, just recently, well, uh, Windows, Hyper-V, um, of course, they're coming out with WSL2, so that'll sort of be a difference in terms of how they do things. But both of those platforms have their own native uh, hypervisor technology. If that doesn't work with you, we'll integrate with things like VirtualBox. Um, but with that, we then use our cloud images. So the exact same images that you're using up in the public clouds, you can use locally. So you can almost think of this as creating your own private cloud on your laptop or workstation. Uh, not only is it the same images, but it also has things like Cloud Init. Cloud Init is a, a mechanism. Think of it as a script, but it's something that you can run on your virtual machine before you actually log in for the first time. So if you actually want to do some final installs, final setups, you can do all that. So you have a, a user experience that is very similar to what you'd see up in the cloud. You can do that um, on your laptop with Windows and the Mac. That then gets you into an Ubuntu machine, which you can install microcates, you can install Kubeflow. Uh, you're off to the races. And with that, uh, so two questions on that. I think one you partially answered already, but the first one is, um, uh, can I use um, on the Mac and Windows especially to create a cluster, or is it still only going to be a one instance? Sure, yeah, no, you can create a cluster. So multi-pass, uh, you can you know, spin up as many of these as you want. Um, and then, and then from there, yeah, you can kind of do what you need to do. Um, and then with microcates, uh, once we sort of add clustering to it, uh, if you wanted to sort of emulate, you could sort of create three different VMs, microcates on each one of them, and cluster them together. And those images, even on Mac and Windows, are exactly the same as the ones I'd be using in production. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's pretty easy to just push somehow. My, one yeah. of the things that we emphasize, which is you know. Even on your laptop, that is a cloud environment. So when you think of your development pipeline, from your development to staging to production, the more you can make all of that the same, all the way down to the OS and the same kernel, because you know with containers, they're leveraging some of those kernel mechanisms. Um, the more you make those identical, the fewer surprises you're going to get in production, right? And you mentioned Edge. So is there a mechanism for me to also be running the similar infrastructure on um, yeah, more restricted devices? Whether you whether you have an edge cloud that uh, substantiates, as an example, running uh, OpenStack and then Kubernetes within OpenStack, or whether or not you have a, a smaller cloud where you will do OpenStack or sorry Kubernetes directly on bare metal. Uh, let's say if it's eight servers or something even smaller, a single node, three nodes, and you might use microcates in that setting. Yeah, it's the that environment at the edge, up in the cloud, in your data center, would all be the same. And was there any reason that you went down this path of creating your a new option for this instead of using Docker and VirtualBox and the, the other options that already are taking advantage of the hypervisors? Sure, yeah, yeah. I think um, so. We when you look around at the time, there was nothing that leveraged the native. This is not new. Multipass is new. But, you know, it is leveraging, um, so two things. One, it's leveraging the actual native hypervisor, which um, Docker sort of does with XHive, but it's, a slightly, it's slightly different, but it's not a virtual machine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Docker's going to do a container, but not a VM. 
VirtualBox does, but then VirtualBox is a separate application. So like on the Mac, if you run this on the Mac and you use a native hypervisor, um, you'll see that your boot up times uh, are dramatically improved. But then also even the memory and CPU utilization, when you're using it in VirtualBox, it'll actually kind of consume that for you already, which then automatically de degrades what, what you're, it's available to you, versus with the, the native um, integration, only as your virtual machine uses more memory will it actually use the real memory on your, on your computer. So there's just small things like that that make, I think, a huge difference. When I've had to do these things in the past, I've had to close down a lot of applications on my Mac when I'm using VirtualBox that I now just don't have to do with Multipass and the native integration. But then also, with those other ones, you don't see the integration with our cloud images. So our cloud images um, are there. They'll get cached automatically. So the user experience side of it is very different. If you go to, as an example, VirtualBox and Vagrant, you'll see that there's lots of different Ubuntu versions and some of them have like, you know, Puppet installed and this and that and who created these. Whereas here, you're getting something that is supported from Canonical, the creators of Ubuntu. So this is created by you though, but do you hope it to become kind of a, 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 a standard or, or not? I, well, I think we will see it uh, being used in a lot of different places. And just like uh, MicroKates has been taking off like a rocket ship, uh, Multipass is relatively new. And I think we'll see that gain wide adoption. We'll also see with WSL2, we'll see quite a lot of adoption. I was going to ask about that because I've, I've actually, because Build just happened, I've had a bunch of interviews around WSL recently, so Windows subsystem for Linux. So, yeah, how does, I mean, in terms of developer workflows, obviously, is that that's a, a supplemental to this? Like it's another option, or exactly, it's another option, and um, and I think you'll find um, WSL two being great for certain use cases. And personally, I just haven't dove, dove into that yet. And you'll find that. Um, that multipasses is great for other use cases, and I think having multiple versions of the of the actual operating system that you want to run, plus also WS2, it is an Ubuntu, an Ubuntu kernel, but it's not the same as what you're going to be running up in the cloud, right? So if you're just looking for essentially an Ubuntu shell, then that might be a natural place. If you're looking for more of your own private cloud option, then I think multipass is going to be much better for you. I'm Shen Liang. I'm the, one of the co-founders and CEO of Rancher Labs. And what, for the people who don't know, what is Rancher Labs? Rancher Labs is an open source software company. We develop open source software that, uh, that is an enterprise Kubernetes platform. So by that, we mean we enable organizations to run Kubernetes any, everywhere. And... Um, I mean, there's, a, there's obviously a few vendors and offerings that do that. So what do you do that you feel is different and special? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I think it's, it has to kind of start from how we believe the industry will go. And uh, we believe uh, Kubernetes is really going to be the foundational technology that powers majority, if not all, applications on the server side in the future. So when that happens, we believe... Um, uh, developers and operations people will just be running Kubernetes everywhere. So it's running Kubernetes is not really just, you know, a data center or even a cloud uh, endeavor. It's you, you, we're seeing a lot of interest. People run Kubernetes in, even in branch offices, uh, even on the edge. And on, on the other side, developers even start to run Kubernetes on the laptop so that they can develop their application and, and test those applications 
happens on the fly in exactly the same environment. As production, so if you if you think about the world in the future where Kubernetes is everywhere, then you almost have to come to terms with it that Kubernetes is not necessarily a piece of technology a single vendor will be able to provide. So, for example, there are a lot of vendors here who might specialize in Kubernetes on premise. There might be vendors who are who specializing providing Kubernetes as a development tool, and there you know there are companies like.、Um, uh, Like Amazon and Google, who would be doing Kubernetes and service in the cloud, right? So, so,、uh, so I would say, unlike a lot of these folks here who focuses on in our space, who focuses on providing just a Kubernetes distro and standing up Kubernetes, Rancher Labs, we built a management platform really spans any Kubernetes cluster, regardless where you get it. Who does it? And that、uh, we believe now, the 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 challenge is no longer on how to install Kubernetes and 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 solving the day one, day two operational problems, but really how to drive. Uh, Kubernetes adoption massively in an organization. How to make sure that developers can get productive,、uh, you know, in, in in this new paradigm, and、uh, how to make sure IT organizations can ensure security and compliance. So, so from Rancher's perspective,、uh, multi-cluster is almost the norm, not just multi-namespaces,、um, uh, and.、Uh, And 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 almost multi-vendor uh, 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 that provides Kubernetes is also the norm as well. So that's that's some of the things we do differently from you know from from say the the likes of Docker EE and 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 and, and Red Hat OpenShift, which are basically uh, 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 in very feature-rich and enhanced Kubernetes distros. So I'm I'm guessing from a from a developer slash user's perspective, you have a command line interface, a GUI,、um, and what、um, what providers do you integrate with at the moment? Great question. So,、um, Rancher itself,、uh, we do、uh, Kubernetes distros as well. That's still a, that used to be all of our business, but now that's actually becoming a, a smaller part of our business, less than fifty percent now. So,、uh, and and we actually have even in that space, we have two distros. We have a distro called Rancher Kubernetes Engine. That is that is our mainstream distro today that works in the data center and in the cloud.、Uh, Uh, but we also recently shipped a distro called K3S. That's a small, lightweight Kubernetes distro that was initially developed for for edge and branch office use. But we're also seeing tons of interest by developers just running these things on, you know, on on on, on laptops or running them in, you know, in in, in Raspberry Pis and, and and places like that. So so it's 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 been tremendous. But On top of that,、uh, Rancher really, as a as a as a Kubernetes container management product, really works with any distro. So through Rancher, you can you can act, we can even create like EKS, GKE, AKS clusters for you, and and.、Uh, 
and we can, um, um, uh, it, or if you've already set up a cluster, say you've set up an OpenShift cluster, or you set up a KOps cluster, uh, or you install the cluster manually using kubeADM, we just be able to import it into Rancher and manage it from there. But what, what, what's, so hopefully that, that answers your question, what Kubernetes providers we support. Do you, I, I feel like you used to also maintain some other tools like Rancher OS and some other things, but do you still do that or have you changed the model a little bit? Yeah, we, we, you know, we, 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 we do uh, a bunch of technologies. Rancher OS is, a, is, is there. Rancher OS is a, is a lightweight Linux distro uh, built for the, really for the sole purpose of running Docker containers. But, but the world is changing. Uh, so for example, even though today, uh, I would say vast majority of Kubernetes distros manage Docker containers, but looking forward, uh, say our K3S uh, Kubernetes distro actually only manages container D. Because uh, Docker is actually a little bit too heavyweight for <laughs> for being just a container runtime. Because when you install Docker, it comes with Swarm and all that kind of stuff, whether you need it or not, right? So, 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 so in that sense, we're, we've actually created a a new lightweight. Uh, uh, operating system distro called K3OS. So that is a that is a Kubernetes distro, K3S and a Linux distro combining one. That's very interesting because it makes it so easy to operate uh, Kubernetes, like uh, so, you don't have to upgrade and patch and maintain the operating system image separately from the Kubernetes distro. So we still have a project like that, and we have a bunch of other things. Just today, actually, we announced a project called Rio, like as in Rio de Janeiro, R I O, and uh, uh, and the. The the, the thing, Rio is a is a micro pass platform. So it's similarly along the lines of you you remember early days of a of of, of Docker. There were platforms like Deus and Flint. Yeah, yeah. It's similar to that, except it's built on Kubernetes. It, it uses all the latest technology. It actually comes with it. Uh, 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 the Istio service mesh and Knative, you know, pass platform. And 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 it's, it has a very very simple interface. Actually, very similar to, uh, you know, it's almost as easy to use as Docker, but but then you have the whole pile of Kubernetes and Istio and Knative underneath, right? So it's, a, it's almost a new take on, on, on MicroPaaS. You know, it's, it's not a traditional pass in the sense that it's a, it's a gigantic platform out there that, that every developer has to tether to it. This is something that's very lightweight and wherever you have Kubernetes already running, whether it's on a laptop for a developer or it's in a data center or it's a GKE cluster, you can just overlay uh, uh, real on it, and you'll be able to develop. You'll be able to deploy and manage and upgrade your applications very easily. Okay, so just to dig into a little bit more detail there, because that was going to be my next question. So Rio is something you will add on top of. Okay, and for predominantly saying application management or for other purposes as well. So I mean, if I if I tell you its capabilities, it'll be more obvious. So it has a, it, you know, it, it does things like deploy, you know, uh, create create microservices or apps, web services from containers. Uh, so you kind of run a replica set, right? It's like a, a bit of a like a, uh, uh, like a serverless kind of experience. You know, I have a bunch of containers and just, just, just turn them into services and expose them 
through uh, uh, as as a web URL. It automatically uh, it automatically creates let's encrypt certificates. So you, so takes care of all the all the all the SSL certificates. Uh, it, it it has route. That's that's actually a K native feature, right? You can yeah, um, uh, so it has intelligent. Uh, uh, it, it has intelligent load balancing, effectively built-in, and then it has all the service mesh capabilities. That means you get all the stats, you get auto scaling, you get um, uh, you know you you, uh, you 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 get these sophisticated upgrade mechanisms like you know like uh, like Canary. So so uh, so so, all, so, you, so I can roll out a new version of the service gradually over time as they. You know, as as they pass, as these services pass my my acceptance test, and if something goes wrong, I can roll back. So it is, a, it is, it is. I think it is the sort of thing that uh, people I always expected a pass platform to be able to do. Except now, with the power of Kubernetes and Istio and Knative, it, it really gives a new spin to pass. And pass is no longer as heavyweight as it used to be. And it actually, you can almost carry around with it. it, it, it now it's you know, PaaS historically. I always look at PaaS as something as an as an evolution of middleware in some sense, right? But now I look at real. It, it's actually be, almost beginning to look more like an app server because <laughs> it's it's something you can kind of carry with you. Is this uh, exclusively a commercial service from you? Is it also an open source? Okay, okay. It's 100% open source software that you can deploy on any Kubernetes cluster. Everything we do as a company, everything we do is open source software. And I guess you you make income from sort of a certain level of service, or how how do you how do you yeah how do you how do you make income yeah yeah so uh, so our business model is um, uh, uh, our business model is as our as 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 rancher users start to put our software in production. They generally uh, come to Rancher and, and 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 procure a subscription. So also, it's very similar to the Red Hat model, where you know you would, even though the software is free itself is free, and the source code is freely available, right? And 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 they're effectively getting that assurance and support and peace of mind, and from from a vendor, so that if uh, so they can you know they can. They can run these applications in production reliably and securely. Apart from Rio, do you have any other announcements or news at the show this year? Not, yeah, not specifically at this show. There's so much going on at this show, but but this year we've had a, we've had so many things just as, that happened in the last six months. You know, so for for uh, uh, just just to refresh, I think early this year we uh, we, uh, we we shipped a major release of Rancher called 2.2, and it had uh, a big focus for Rancher. 2.2 is to uh, uh, really uh, enable something called multi-cluster applications. So you know, like uh, Kubernetes is is think about it. Most people would deploy applications onto a single Kubernetes cluster, right? And Kubernetes cluster is supposed to be distributed. But what we saw was a um, 
um, uh, as as people start to to run Kubernetes across a wild a wide geographic uh, 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 distribution, like you have multiple data centers, a lot of people don't necessarily run a single cluster across multiple regions or even multiple availability zones. They actually prefer to keep the blast radius of Kubernetes a little smaller, and 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 then they actually create Kubernetes clusters that reside in in, in its own availability zone. So, so in that sense, now if I want to deploy a a, a highly resilient application, that means I'm going to have to deploy copies of my the same application across multiple Kubernetes clusters. Then I have to tie um, uh, uh, the ingress traffic uh, together so that uh, so that. So you know, they go through some common load balancer or DNS, and I have to tie the backend access to database together. So, so, so Rancher 2.2 supports that. That was a, that was a very because uh, we've been like I said, we've been doing a, 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 a multi-cluster management for a while, and and multi-cluster application is just a natural progression of that. And then we announced another piece of technology very very closely related to this called Submariner. It is a it is a piece of networking technology that connects yeah that's awesome yeah so so that that connects pods uh, that that creates a seamless network layer three network connectivity between pods in different clusters. So just just I just use that multi-cluster application as an example. Imagine if you if you deploy a Cassandra cluster across because Cassandra is designed to run in a geo geographically distributed environment, right? So if I deploy Cassandra across, say, two Kubernetes clusters, but then my Cassandra nodes in these two clusters have to talk to each other. And it would have been very difficult without without Submariner. With Submariner, they can connect to each other directly. Without Submariner, I'm actually not even sure it's possible because then you'd have to essentially traverse out to the internet and maybe back in through an ingress controller or something. It would just be, it would be very complicated. So, so Submariner is 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 being very successful. It's actually a very it's a vibrant uh, community. Yeah, yeah, but it's becoming a community project. Like, uh, like folks from Red Hat and stuff, they're actually contributing to it. So that's very good. It's only like three months old, and then and then and then we 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 also we created a project called K3S. I ex explained it. It's a lightweight Kubernetes distro, and then K3S is kind of given birth to a to a series of projects closely related. There's K3S. There's K3S on Docker called K3D. There's K3S based operating system called K. OS. So I mean, Kubernetes space is fascinating. Have you, have you? Last time I went to KubeCon in the keynote, and I heard someone say Kubernetes is becoming boring and it, it is good. And I think they meant they have the right. I mean, they meant good because they meant like Kubernetes is not stable. Yeah. But I kind of took it and said, no, 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 Kubernetes is not boring at all. There's so many. Ecosystem, yeah, yeah. so many new things are happening, right? Like again, yeah, yeah. You, you, you. you the, I mean, Kubernetes. I, I don't think, like, I don't think Kubernetes as is is actually even sufficient to be successful. You actually need all these things yeah. coming from the ecosystem, all these add-on projects, right? So, so, so we're having a great time launching yeah, these projects. Yeah, yeah. I mean. 
we just have to look here. I've already had three interviews and heard so many different um, additions and ecosystem uh, components that I hadn't even heard of before. <laughs> no, it's really the most vibrant ecosystem I've ever seen. And uh, just uh, one other quick question. Um, the name, is that from like the pets and cattle thing? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, Shannon, and, Shannon and I, we actually started a company in 2008 called Cloud.com. And we created a piece of software called CloudStack. It, it predated OpenStack a little bit, but very similar. We're very successful building, you know, infrastructure as a service clouds. Uh, it's open source software. It's Apache, Apache CloudStack. So, so, so we had a history doing this kind of stuff. And pets versus cattle always resonated with us. And uh, and 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 I think really like. The way it, I want to tie it back to our view of Kubernetes, because our view of Kubernetes is really it is the common infrastructure. Because, because for this cattle paradigm to work, cattle really had to be commodity. Like, 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 even though like you can like Amazon would tell you like you Amazon's great, but 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 they say you can manage these EC2 instances as cattle. It is true, but it's a very special kind of cattle. It's the kind of cattle you can only procure from one vendor, right? So it's not really cattle. It's almost like it's a, you know, it's it's like oh, it's a, it, only UK produces that cattle and no other country can produce it. That would be very strange, you know, right? Oh, this farm produced the cattle. So so it's a bit like that. So we, we always felt as good as these cloud resources are, were as cattle they weren't they, they weren't real cattle they weren't real commodity and that's why when we saw kubernetes i was like that could be it because kubernetes clusters actually sounded like the new cattle you know if you because 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 honestly there's a lot less difference between think about it like if you look at it if you look at a ec2 instance against a gc or like azure instance they kind of they're kind of similar, but they're not really exchangeable. They're not really a commodity, right? Whereas if you look at a GKE uh, cluster versus a EKS cluster, they're almost like a commodity. They look a lot more similar. And and then um, and then people used to say, you know, oh, it's one thing that you have commoditized compute, but what about these cloud services? You know, like. RDS, you know, like these services are gonna tie you down. So, so you still they're not really commodity. But, but then if you look at the Kubernetes ecosystem, you look at everyone now actually make their solutions natively work with Kubernetes. So once your solution, like Lightstep, or you take Datadog, you know, just just anything like Aqua Security, you know, JFrog, <laughs> CloudBees, they they work everywhere, right? It, I I think now I I would think it's almost like. Kubernetes clusters almost like the new commoditized infrastructure, and and that's why like th that's actually how we said okay we want to make so it's more like a ranch than a cow yeah yeah <laughs> so we make we 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 make our we, that's why we we want to be rancher right we want to be something that's coordinating and managing all those resources help our help our customers do that and uh, and 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 it is I mean I think I think it's just a much better way for IT to. You know, to manage everything, to 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 to, to be productive and to be efficient. 
And finally, I'm, I'm hoping as an open source company, you're happy to share this. What are you working on? What's what's next on the roadmap in the next six months to a year? Yeah, uh, so we're, we're, we're working, I mean, we're very open about this kind of stuff. So we're, we're going to uh, prioritize things like K3S, K3OS, and Real. Uh, because right now, they are, these things are all uh, just... just uh, Really, like off, like tech preview alpha quality uh, uh, products, right? So we're gonna turn them into beta and turn them into a release. And we're we're, we're gonna also start working on a cloud service. So one thing we've we, we've we've realized was um was today we have a lot of partners that's actually taking Rancher and running it as a service, and then we as a, com- a company is being offering just a, 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 a commercial license to essentially support our own software, right? But that has some limitations because the, because we we couldn't really serve everyone that needed our help. It's just it's just the traditional software uh, subscription model has a very high entry barrier. So 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 we're looking now. Our software is getting to be better. We're looking for ways to so that we can run it more efficiently, and then we can you know we can serve more of our customers at a lower cost, and we can so they don't have to run it themselves. Uh, today, uh, a vast majority of Rancher open source users don't get our uh, our commercial service. Only about one percent of our uh, total uh, open source users actually become a, a Rancher subscriber. Become so. So I think with 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 a cloud service, with a SaaS service, with some kind of a with some kind of online service uh, coming from Rancher, that ratio could go a little higher. So that's that's one of the things we're working on. But it's not easy. It's actually it's it's actually incredibly difficult to create an experience to create an experience that 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 is very easy to use. So so we have a lot of work to do. And that was my three interviews from KubeCon so far. First up, you heard IBM's Jason McGee. Second, you heard Canonical's Carmine Rimi. And finally, you heard from Rancher Labs, Sheng Liang. If you've enjoyed the show, you can find notes and previous episodes at christianchiller.com slash podcasts and the newsletters that accompany this podcast at christianchiller.com slash newsletters. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Chris Chinch or find other contact details on the same website I've mentioned twice already. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share. And uh, until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.